bumper. It, it makes me think I'm going to a movie or something. I, it's nice and loud. Well, hey, welcome to New Life Christian Church today. So glad you're here. If this is your first time, my name is Joe, and I get to be the lead pastor here. And before I go to the Word, I just want to say thank you to all of you. Just the outpouring of love on our family since the passing of my father last week has just been um, overwhelming. And so I just want to just say thank you for for all of that, the cards, the text messages, the, the emails, the phone calls, everything has just meant so, so much to us. I, we, we, uh, we had my father's memorial service on, on Monday, and some of you came up for that. And, and when I got back, I had a stack of cards this high on my desk and my mailbox full of cards from all of you. And I just, it just, it means a whole lot. And we feel very much loved, and I want you to know that we're feeling the love. You know, I, I've told you about my dad quite a bit. He was a Christian man and loved the Lord his whole life. And so at his funeral, we were able to talk about death and celebration at the same time. And do you realize that only Christians can talk about death and celebration in the same sentence? Only Christians can do that. I know where my dad is right now. He is in heaven, and I know that there's gonna be a great reunion one day in heaven. That's why the Bible says that we are not a people without hope because we know what is to come. And so I look forward to that great reunion in heaven one day. And I'm just curious, any of you have people in heaven you can't wait to see again? You can't wait for that great reunion? Yeah, many of us, I cannot wait. So uh, thank you for all the love and support. We really do feel it, and I deeply appreciate all of you for that. I wanna share some other great news with you here today that I shared with you Friday in an email that I sent out. David and Judy, you guys wanna come on up here? This is David and Judy Brown, and if you got the email that I sent out on Friday, then you already know what this is all about. But uh, David and Judy are making a big life change here coming up. David has uh, resigned from his position, and he is coming to work for the church full-time as our executive administrator of the church. So that's pretty awesome. And uh, David's going to be in charge of of a number of things, primarily a lot of the running and operations side of the church, overseeing of staff. I don't know if you realize this or not, but New Life Christian Church is probably the busiest church I have ever been in in my life. There is stuff happening here all the time. And I, I talk about our church as having a lot of moving parts. And as we have grown, as we've gotten larger as a church, um, something that we've been kind of watching um, for the last couple of years, knowing that this would probably come into fruition one day, the time has come, and that's to start dividing up some of the, the leadership responsibilities of the church, um, take some of the things that I normally do and, and spread those out a little bit for greater effectiveness. And so David is gonna come in, he's gonna start at the beginning of December, and he's gonna oversee the, the staff, oversee a lot of the functions of the church, the operations, the uh, working with our finance team, uh, the financial responsibility of the church, just a whole lot of things in this executive administrator role, and I couldn't be happier. It's gonna take a huge load off my plate where I can spend more time on working on sermons, shepherding and pastoring the church, and uh, working with the elders and vision casting, and I think of all the things that are on the horizon in our church family. We've got this new property out by the bypass that we're gonna develop here one day and we've got the prospect of moving towards a multi-site situation as a church family, there's just a lot happening and it just feels like God has brought this whole thing together. So uh, with their permission, I get to tell you something that Dave and I have had a lot of talks, Dave and I, and about a year ago, you know, David's currently one of our elders and about a year ago, he came to me and he said, hey, I wanna talk to you and I want you to know what's stirring in my heart. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And he said, you know, uh, for, for many years, I've worked for these different companies and, and we've done a lot of great things. And, 
and uh, just so many wonderful things about it would have happened. But he said, you know, when I lay my head at night, God's been really stirring in my spirit, and I've asked this question, am I making eternal differences in, in the world for the Lord? And, uh, you know, he's always been one, both have always been one, that I carry my torch for Jesus into work with me, and as the Lord gives me opportunities, but there's something shifting in his spirit. He's like, I feel like maybe God is calling me out of what I've been doing and to take all this experience and all this learning and leadership and bring it to vocational Christian ministry. And little did we know that that one conversation was gonna lead to this moment back then, but you were just sharing me what God was stirring in your heart. And, um, and as I've gotten to know both David and Judy really well lately, um, it just seemed apparent. This is the role that God was preparing them both for. Um, as we went down this road uh, in September, the three of us traveled to Canton, Ohio for a ministry readiness assessment. We partnered with a group called Stadia, which is a church planning organization, and they've put together assessment programs that are designed specifically for David and Judy uh, that would determine their readiness to leave the workplace and enter into full-time vocational ministry. And so we spent four days, and it was intense, wasn't it? A lot of intense. The, the takeaway from that is they were really impressed with Judy. And um, <laughs> now they were impressed with both of them. They loved Judy too. And so we got to know each other a lot better, Judy and I did, during those four days. But the, the net result of that four days was like they are so ready and primed to go into this new role in vocational ministry. And so I'm just excited to tell you about it. I wanted to bring them up here today. Um, if you haven't read that email I sent out, I give a few more details, go read that letter. But this is David and Judy, and, and David starts December 2nd, and uh, I'd love for you to welcome them to the leadership here of the church. And if I could pray for them, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we're just so thankful for what you're doing in our church family. We give you praise for it, God. Um, we feel your hand is on all of this. And as we uh, step forward in faith, Lord, and looking, for you, looking to you for all the direction in the world, and we just pray for your help, Lord. I pray with David and Judy as they make this transition. I thank you for what you've already done in their lives to get them ready for this point. And we just pray, God, you guide David and, and you bless the work that he is gonna be doing and that you, you bless it, Lord, from day one, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Well, I also wanna just say thank you to Greg Hafer. I know he's not here, obviously. Greg, Greg was the one who preached for me last week, and I think he did a great job, um, and, and him preaching for me last week allowed me to be with my family who had traveled in from all over to, to, uh, to, to, to be together at the passing of my father. Greg did not get a whole lot of notice. It was kinda of like this, hey, are you available this weekend? Yeah, wanna preach? Okay, good. Let me know how it goes. And that was kind of the, the direction he got. So I appreciate the word that he shared. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, it's available online as well. Well, today we're gonna pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago with this series called Collision. And collision is defined this way in the dictionary. It is the act or instance of colliding. It also means to clash. It also holds this idea to come into conflict. And there's this thought, this heavy thought that's been weighing on my heart for quite some time. And it's this, you know, as Christians, we are constantly colliding with, um, and colliding into, clashing into different ideas, concepts, behaviors, and actions that are not reflective of what the scripture teaches. And this is nothing new. This is not shocking information. We, we live every day of our lives in this reality. 
But I think you would agree that sometimes it's very difficult to live every day for Jesus Christ and to do that in environments and around people that don't share our same faith convictions as we do. Maybe you've got a really good friend and when you spend time together, that friend wants to do these kinds of things. And you're like, I just don't do those kind of things. And it's hard sometimes, the pressure, the temptation to still live and walk with Jesus daily. You know, you might go to work and you're the only Christian at, at your workplace. And, and maybe you're surrounded by people that, that, that talk a certain way and, and it's so different than you. And the, the things they laugh at, it's, it's separate from what, and, and it's hard to live every day for Jesus. Maybe you've got a neighbor who's really kind to your face. But deep down, they, 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 they look down upon you because you go to church and, and, and you believe the way that you do. And maybe deep down, they've got some antagonistic spirit against, about, against Christians. And I don't know if you have a neighbor like that or not. I asked that question last night. Anybody got a neighbor like that? And somebody down front goes, yep, really loud like that. And I was like, well, it's kind of a rhetorical question. You didn't have to shout it out. But anyway, uh, but you know, it's, it's, you, know we, you might be the only person in your family that's carrying the spiritual torch for Jesus. And when you go home, you're gonna kinda get that usual little bit of ribbing. How was church? Living daily for Jesus isn't always easy. I mean, turn on the TV, go to see a movie, uh, listen to music, you're, you're gonna see that our world as Christians is clashing into all different kinds of beliefs and concepts and ideas. It's not always easy to walk with Jesus. Welcome to the collision. You know, we talked last week that there's three different ways that Christians can, can deal with this collision. They're like, how do we collide with the world and come out still on our feet and still loving Jesus and not falling away? Well, we can become a cave-in. We talked about that. A cave-in is somebody who just, maybe they look like a Christian on the outside, but deep down, they've just caved into the way the world thinks. Their life is really no different than, than, than the world, and, and we just cave in. And my fear, a lot of Christians are under that temptation all the time. And I look at a lot of our churches here in America, and a lot of our denominations, and I wonder, are, are we just not caving in to what the world wants and this worldly way of thinking? So you can be a cave-in. You, know, you can respond this way, too. You can become a cave-dweller. A cave dweller is the exact opposite. A cave dweller is like, you know what? We're going to separate ourselves from, from the world. We're, you know, we're stuck here until Jesus comes, but we're going, to, we're going to circle the wagons. We're going to huddle up in our churches, and we're not going to have anything to do with that stuff. And I'll be honest, like I share with you the first message of the series, there's parts of that that are kind of appealing, except if you become a cave dweller, you'll never become what Jesus wants you to be. So I wonder, maybe, just maybe, what the Lord really wants from us is to have this approach. We are going to be a collider, a collider. What in the world is a collider? Well, a collider is somebody who understands that every single day we're gonna be colliding with, with worldliness. There's, it happens, there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's, it's unavoidable. But a collider is somebody who approaches these collisions with the same mentality as Jesus and they seek after the same things that Jesus is seeking after. We're gonna, what did the Lord seek after? He came to seek and to save the lost. And a collider is like, Lord, I'm in this world. I'm not of this world. I'm separated it from it, but in the me while I'm here, Lord, I'm going to collide with it, and I'm going to try to win some to Jesus. Today, I want to talk about what happens when you make the active, intentional decision to be a collider, because I do believe it's something you choose to do. You don't just stumble into it. You choose to be a collider. Here's what's going to happen when you make that decision. 
Satan and his demonic horde will come against you like you would not believe. And it's probably not gonna look like a scary movie. Hollywood has a way of, uh, of, of making the devil seem a, a certain way. I, I don't think he's gonna come against you like a scary movie. But he's gonna come against you in ways that you may not be expecting. You know, to illustrate this, I want you to, I wanna take you to a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. If you got your Bibles, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Nehemiah? And I know that's probably not a book that we're used to turning to very often, so I'm gonna give you a, a minute to open that up. But Nehemiah, who in the world is Nehemiah? Well, I'll tell you who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was a big time collider who faced the full force of the devil's resistance. Nehemiah's story, it takes place during a time of great disarray for the Israelites. It's a long story, we're not gonna unpack it all for sure, but essentially what was going on is that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Jerusalem, this great city, it's really, you could say it's God's city. This is where the Israelites, this was their home base, God's people, and the walls were completely destroyed, and the Israelites, were left just scattered about, just a remnant of what they used to be. Now this all happened years and years, long before Nehemiah. And these, these, these walls were really a visual example of Israel's failure. I mean, the way that these walls were, and they're all broken down, and Jerusalem was just, just totally torn up. It really is, a, it's a visual illustration of Israel caving in. They, they didn't stay true to godliness, they didn't stay true to what God wanted and, and this was the result of their caving in. So Nehemiah, he hears about the condition of the walls of Jerusalem and it breaks his heart and he's like, it shouldn't be this way. I think God wants me to do something. And he goes to God and he says, God, I'm available to you. Use me to rebuild the walls. And in this moment, we see Nehemiah becoming a huge collider. God, use me, send me to go and do what you want. And as you read the story, that God actually calls Nehemiah to do this and resources him to do this. And off he goes to Jerusalem. And he, and he gathers together some of the scattered Israelites and side by side, family by family, they begin to rebuild the walls. And what happens next is the biggest collision of Nehemiah's faith with a world that absolutely does not want the things that he desires. He has a collision with the world that hates the things of God, hates everything that he stands for, thinks, hates everything about what he's about. It's a world that is completely against God. And this collision, it came in the form of people. And this group of people that came against Nehemiah and what he's doing had three ringleaders. And their names were Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Now, if you got Nehemiah open, we're gonna start in chapter two. Chapter two, and we're gonna start in verse 10. It says this, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They were disturbed. They had heard some things. You know what? We don't like that God's name is attached to this and it, it disturbs me that Nehemiah is coming here doing something for God. And I'm gonna tell you something right now. That has never changed and I don't think that that ever will change. 
From the very beginning till now, it seems like there are groups of people that are greatly disturbed and they are angered when they hear about anything that's got the Lord's name attached to it. I'll give you some really well-known examples. Haven't we seen uh, all of this uprising over what? The Ten Commandments in our courtrooms, remember? Remember, there's this huge uprising. Get those Ten Commandments. What do these Christians think they're doing? We don't want any Christian influences on our court system. Get those Ten Commandments. And we have endured years of activist groups trying to get every, every uh, printing, every display of the Ten Commandments out of our public spaces. We have heard you're doing something. We want it out. How hard have people worked to get prayer out of school? We don't want prayer in school. We want Christian influence on our kids. We don't want this. We want this to be separate. We want God in this. What are you doing? You know, even every football season, we, there's some coach out there, some players, is like, we're going to have a prayer before our game. And, and guess what happens? It makes the news, doesn't it? How dare he bring Jesus into this conversation? Have you been following what's going on with Kanye West? Yeah, who, 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 who cannot, okay? Um, Kanye West, in case you don't know, for years was probably one of the, I don't know how to describe it, one of the raunchiest, worst rappers there was, singing about all kinds of things. Well, somewhere in the last year or so, that man became a Christian, and he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can clap for him. That's fine. It would praise life change. I've had a lot of people ask me, do you think it's real? Do you think that he really is a Christian? Uh, I don't know Kanye West personally. You, that may surprise you. Um, um, we, well, I don't have him on my speed dial. He didn't call me up. He doesn't ask me theological questions ever. I see what you see. And I guess I'll just tell you this. The Bible says that if you're really a Christian, it will show. And I don't know. He's showing us some great things, isn't he? You know, the Bible talks about the fruit. And when a man that's made a bajillion dollars off of his music stands up before the world and says, I will never perform the devil's music again. I will only use this stuff for Jesus. I don't know, that's some pretty good fruit. Um, I, I can tell you some more fruit. The National Bible Society said that since Kanye West came out with his Christian al album, their requests for free Bibles have are, I've just exploded. 10,000 requests, I think, in the last month, they reported, uh, above what they usually get. And they said it's probably because of Kanye. Fruit. Well, Kanye, if you've been following a little bit of what he's been doing, what did he do last week? He kind of had a surprise visit to two prisons in the Houston, I believe it was the Houston, Texas area. And he comes in and he performs for them and he preaches about Jesus. And guess what happens as a result of that? All these atheist groups have come out and they said, you can't do that. You cannot let Kanye West into the prisons anymore. And we are gonna stand up against this. We do not want anybody going into our prisons talking about love, forgiveness, and healing and peace. That was, that, we don't want that in the prisons. course they're not opposed to love healing forgiveness and peace they're opposed to attaching jesus's name to it you gotta stop this 
I'm telling you, what we're reading about in Nehemiah, that they have heard these things, they were angered about it, that somebody came to promote the welfare of the Israelites. When you come in somewhere like Kanye and you're gonna promote the things of Jesus, it's gonna anger a lot of people. Nothing has ever changed. I, I will tell you one thing, it's hard for me to get used to. I listen to Air One Radio quite a bit. Do you guys listen to Air One? Um, it's an offshoot of K-Love. It's 88.1 here in Northwest Arkansas. Great music. I'm still not used to the DJs on there saying, that was the latest by Kanye West. It doesn't make sense. If you look at verse 19 of chapter two, it says this. But when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Amorite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. This is Nehemiah talking in the first person. This is what they did to us. They mocked and ridiculed. I see that all the time. What is this you are doing, they ask. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, are servant, we, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Right here in Nehemiah 2, what we are reading is an account of a collision. And you're gonna see that this collision isn't just a little conflict of interest. No, it's not just a little different of opinion here. No, no, no. This collision has all the makings of a good versus evil struggle between God and Satan himself. And I think you're gonna understand this by the time we're done today. You know, when I read about Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and, and I look at what they do through the book of Nehemiah and all their efforts, you know what I see? I see the handiwork, I see the fingerprints of Satan all over it. And when I see and I read about how Nehemiah dealt with these guys, he would deal with it the same, he deals with it the same way anybody would who is under spiritual attack. You know, I doubt that any of you know or work with anybody by the name of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. You know, that's just a guess, but I don't think you do. And I don't think you know anybody by those names who are opposing your faith and opposing your convictions and actually working against you. But I guarantee you that you know people just like them. They don't have the same names, but they probably go by, you know, Sally, Adam, Nancy, Chuck, Bill. I don't know, you, you put in your own names. People in your life right now who hate everything that you stand for. This idea that you promote godly things rubs them so bad, that the, just rubs them wrong so much so they may not tell you to your face, but, but I'll tell you, they're there. They're all around you. All of us have Sanballas, Tobias, and Geshems around us. But, you know, there's a lot of details in Nehemiah's story, and we're just gonna briefly look at a little bit of it, but what I want you to see today is that these attempts by Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem um, to thwart and to stop the rebuilding of the walls is nothing more than spiritual attack, and it's exactly the same kind of attack that we experience today. It has the fingerprints of Satan all over, and there's things, if you're paying attention, you'll see in our world today that as we come to these collisions, you're gonna see they have the fingerprints of Satan all over it, and the same kind of attacks, same kind of tactics, and I hope you see that by the time that we're done here. Hey, if you would, turn over to Nehemiah chapter four. We're gonna fast forward the story just a little bit. Nehemiah chapter four, Nehemiah and the Israelites, they go to work on the walls, and here's what happens next, starting verse one. 
When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in one day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. So if you're taking notes this morning, if you have the app open, here is the very first point. This is the first fill in the blank. They tried to take them down. They tried to stop them. And how did they do it? They did it to, they were antagonizing them to doubt God. Sam Ballot, Tobiah Geshem, what were they doing? They were antagonizing them to doubt God. Here at the beginning of construction, they were hurling these verbal assaults at God's people, hoping that they could get them to just quit and give up. And I want you to know something today. I want us to acknowledge as a church that this idea of antagonism is one of the weapons that the devil uses to get you today to doubt God, to give up on him, and to quit on what he's doing too. The devil will antagonize you and his, his demons. It's been one of his primary weapons in this spiritual war since the very beginning, going all the way back into the garden. Do you remember when, when God said, hey, don't eat of this one tree? And we read in Genesis chapter three that the devil slithered up to Eve in the form of a serpent. And what did he say to her? Do you remember? Did God really say? Did God really say? Here we have the groundwork for doubt being laid. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And he antagonized her to doubt what God had said. And she did, she doubted it. And, and don't think for a second that, that the devil won't try to get you to doubt either. He wants you to doubt that God really can forgive sins. He wants you to doubt it. He wants it to be that thing in the back of your mind going, oh, I, I hope he does, but I don't know. He wants you to doubt that God has a master plan for your life. He wants you to doubt that you are of any value to God at all. He wants you to doubt that there's a purpose. He wants you to doubt that, that a broken relationship could ever be restored. He wants you to doubt that your kids will ever come back to Christ. He wants you to doubt that living the Christian life is the best way to live and on and on and on. And I just wanna break the news to you. He will use people in your life to instill that doubt. How does he do this? Well, there are millions of people we go to work with them every day, we live close by, that whether they know it or not, most likely not, they have aligned themselves with the very purposes of the enemy. And the devil knows that. And I do believe the devil in ways can scheme and manipulate and influence and where people in some ways where they don't even know it are becoming the mouthpieces of the devil himself. See, I think Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem really were just the mouthpieces who were voicing the will of the enemy to try to get Nehemiah to stop. And I think there are times when we collide with the world, what we sometimes encounter and listen to is really the enemy. Oh, you don't want to do that. 
God didn't really say. Do you think God really loves you like you think? Do you really think this? How did Nehemiah respond to this? If you look at verse four of chapter four, hear us, our God, for we are despised. He went to prayer. And he's not unaware of this antagonism. Oh, Lord, we are despised. Then he says, turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. I don't know. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? Oh, Lord, they are coming against me hard. Lord, I'm asking you to turn it back on them. I think it's okay to pray pray those prayers at times. Nehemiah did. And then he says, do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins. I think this might be Nehemiah's way of saying or how we might pray this today is, and Lord, you turn it back on them and don't make it easy on them. (laughs) Make it hard on them like they're trying to make it hard on me. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. I I want you to see that Nehemiah, in the face of such antagonism, he turned to God in prayer. He gave it to God. He went to God. And I wonder, did any of you come in here today after suffering through a little bit of antagonism? Maybe you were even antagonized today. Maybe you were under a little bit of spiritual attack and you didn't even know it. Maybe it came across like this. Ah, don't go to church today. What good is that gonna do? What what good is that gonna do? Oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites down there anyway. Why would I wanna go spend an hour with them? Do you really think that God notices you Do you really think that by going to church, God's gonna pay attention to you? Do you really think that God's gonna listen to you? Do you really think that you could ever move on and really truly have this thing called a new life? Do you think you could do that? But I don't know if you've been coming under some of that antagonism to doubt God. But if you are, I want you to do like Nehemiah did. He just gave it to God. He said, oh, hear us, oh God, I know I'm coming under this. I feel despised by this stuff, but Lord, I'm asking you to take it away. Turn it on them. Turn the tables, God. Flip the coin and make it hard on them, and Lord, protect me. I think it's okay to pray those prayers. Well, they antagonized Nehemiah quite a bit, and that failed. And then they tried something else. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arab, and the Amorites and, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the, and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So when antagonism failed, it says they plotted together. We're gonna, we're gonna take this up a notch. If you're still taking notes, here was their second attempt. They were gonna find just the right angle. And I think that's how the enemy works. So if they're not gonna back down because of my verbal attacks, well, I'm gonna find a different angle here. I think this is exactly why the Bible tells us so clearly in Ephesians chapter six to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes because he is a plotter. He is a schemer. 
And just like these bullies in Nehemiah's world, our enemy is constantly plotting. He's constantly looking for the right angle to take you down. He's looking for that opportunity to get you to quit, to destroy your witness. Ultimately, he wants you to stop colliding. He doesn't want the resistance that Christians bring. And I wonder, is that how you see it? I mean, do you understand Scripture's teaching in that way? That our enemy, he doesn't sleep. His demons, they don't take breaks. They hate the church. Translation, they hate you because you love Jesus. All over the pages of the scripture that talks about the devil being a schemer, always looking for an angle, and I don't know how else to understand what the Bible teaches. Uh, later on in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul will say, in addition to this, in addition to the full armor of God, in addition to this, he says, take up the shield of faith. How am I supposed to understand the shield of faith? Well, think of it this way. Think of Captain America from the Avengers, all right? He's got a shield. And, and you know, that shield, what's it do? He says, I want you to have this shield, just like this, to protect you from what, is, what does Paul say? so that you can extinguish or they can bounce off all the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, I think we should have this mentality of our enemy, that he's looking for you, he's looking for an angle, and he constantly is pelting us with things. So we take up a shield of faith. This is my faith in Jesus Christ that I believe one day I'm gonna be with Jesus forever in heaven, and until that day, my faith equips me to repel the enemy. I have my shield of faith, and he's gonna, he's gonna knock off all these flaming arrows. Where do these arrows come from? They come from a schemer a plotter who's looking for an angle. You remember Judas? Of course we all do. One of Jesus's disciples who ultimately betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. When I look at that story and I think about all the things that took place there that betrayed Jesus, um, I believe that Satan schemed and he found his angle to get to Jesus through Judas. Let me show you how. In John chapter 13, verse two, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. The evening meal was happening. And the Bible says that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So very much Satan was involved with Judas doing what he did. Why Judas? What led to that? Why was he available? Why him? Well, the devil found his angle. Judas had a weakness. Now, I'm not saying there weren't some genuine parts of Judas. I'm not saying that everything he ever did was bad. But there was a part of him, there was a weakness in him that, that wasn't surrendered over to God. There was a part where he's like, I'm keeping this part back for me, and I'm going to keep this from the rest of the, the disciples, from Jesus. Jesus knew it, but uh, this is mine. And the, the devil knew this weakness was there. Well, what was that weakness? Well, we know that the Bible tells us that Judas was greedy and dishonest. And this is where the Bible tells us that. If you were to back up one chapter to John chapter 12, um, we read this incident. Jesus had, a friend, had friends named Mary and Martha. And Mary, not his mother, but a friend, she had this very expensive perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet with this perfume. Do you remember this story? And Judas had a very negative reaction. The only one in the room that had a negative reaction to this. It says in John 12, 4, 
One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Objected to this anointing. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. You know, well, that sounds kind of noble, actually. Until we find out this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Satan had his angle. Judas had a weakness. He was not honest. He had a weakness. He was a little greedy. He had a weakness. He cared more about himself than the poor and the people they were trying to reach. Don't think for a second that Satan's demons aren't sizing you up, looking for your weakest spot to take you down. Satan, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Satan wants your marriages to fail. Do you realize that? He does not want healthy marriages. He wants marriages to fail. That's why marriage is under attack today. He wants marriage to fail, and so he plots against your marriage's weakest, most vulnerable spot. Satan doesn't want your kids to follow Jesus. No, no, no. He doesn't want another generation of Christ followers. And so he plots and schemes to interfere with your kids coming to know Jesus. Satan does not want you to be generous. He doesn't want you to be a giving person. And so he plots and schemes to tie up your family resources. Satan does not want New Life Christian Church to have any influence in this community at all. And so right now, he is plotting and scheming to take the influence we do have for Jesus away. You know, the Apostle Paul acknowledged many times that Satan schemes in this way and that there's vulnerabilities in people's lives. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is teaching the church about forgiveness and, and why we need, as Christians, need to be willing to forgive like Christ forgave us. Listen to what he says. He goes, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now, this is an interesting statement. I have, forgi I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. And look at verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now this is an interesting thing to talk about forgiveness and not being outwitted by the devil at the same time. What is Paul talking about? Paul knew that if we have unforgiveness in our hearts, if there is something in our heart that says, I will never forgive you, I hate you, I hate what you did, you're dead to me, you're out of my life, nothing, he knows that the devil will exploit that hard heart in an instant. The devil will use that. He says, I'm not unaware of the way the devil works. And an unforgiving heart can very easily turn into a weak spot in your journey with Jesus. So Paul says, I forgive for your sake. I can't go down, I forgive because I'm not gonna be outwitted by the devil. He's not gonna use that to, for, to, to, to take me down. And I wonder, do you see the devil's schemes and attacks in the same way? Paul would later say in Ephesians chapter four, verse 25, he says, don't even give the devil a foothold in your life. 
What's a foothold? I get this impression that you stick your foot in the door jams, the door can't close. Just don't even let him have a little foot in there. Don't let him have his big toe in your life. No, you slam the door, you push him back. Don't even give him a little bit because you know why? You give him a little, he's gonna exploit it, he's gonna find that weak spot and he's gonna use it to try to take you down. So Paul's like, I'm not gonna get outwitted by him. How, how did Nehemiah respond to this attack, to this, this scheming for an angle to take him down? Well, he did it the same way he responded to their antagonism. Look at Nehemiah 4.9. What's it say? It says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Real quickly, turn over to chapter six. I'm gonna show you this third one real quick and we'll run a little bit long, but I'll try to hurry But if you look at Nehemiah chapter six, the devil comes at him again. Okay, so he tried to antagonize him. He plotted looking for that weak spot in him. And he does that for us. He's gonna do a third attempt. Look at chapter six, verse one. It says, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Friends, here's a little word of advice. If anybody ever says, hey, I need you to meet me in the village of Ono, don't go. Like, oh no, I'm not going to Ono. And look what he says. But they were scheming to harm me. Nehemiah knew what they were up to. And he goes, I'm not gonna have anything to do with them. I know they're scheming. I know there's more to this. So he said, I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. They are persistent. Look at verse five. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. So if Geshem said this true, you know it's true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, uh, uh, reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Do you understand what's going on? They have blown up this big story about the rebuilding of these walls. They don't understand that God is doing something wonderful, and ultimately God wants to bless the whole world through what Nehemiah is doing and they can't see it and they blow up this big elaborate story and you know I I read stuff and I hear stuff and I see how different groups come against Christians and it's this elaborate blown up story and I think it's just like what's going on with Nehemiah and so Nehemiah says to them in verse 8 he goes I sent him this reply nothing like what you are saying is happening you are just making it up out of your head, and you don't even know how many times I've wanted to quote this verse to people. (laughs) What are you talking about? You are just making this stuff up out of thin air. Here's why they did it. Verse nine, they were all trying to frighten us. Friends, I want you to know something today. A lot of the of the uh, 
opposition that Christians feel today is nothing more than scare tactics. They're trying to frighten us. You know, I get things come across my desk all the time. Well, you can't do this, and the church has to change its way, or you've got to do this, or this is going to happen. You know, there's a threat right now that pastors like me, you have to be willing to perform same-sex marriages in accordance with the law, or the government's going to come down on your church, and they're going to take away this and take away that, or you have, to, you have to say this, and you cannot say that, and you can't quote scripture that way, because it comes across badly, and you can't do it, and they threaten, 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 and guess what? I don't care. I don't care. Because like Nehemiah, they are trying to frighten us. God forbid the day that we give in to scare tactics and stop preaching and talking about Jesus accurately as a reflection of biblical principles because we might lose what? Our nonprofit status? Who cares? So, this third thing is they set up an ambush. You taking notes? This is the third fill in the blank. They set up an ambush in the valley of Ono. Well, do you recall what happened to Jesus right after he was baptized? He spent the next 40 days in the wilderness and he didn't eat anything. And at the end of that 40 days, what happened? This devil set up an ambush for him too. And it says in Matthew 4, 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you know the story, you know what happened. He tried that two more times. All three times, Jesus defeated him with the word of God. It's the prime example of what Peter would later say in 1 Peter 5, 8, the alert and sober-minded because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I wonder, do you see our enemy the same way today? Can you identify in your life right now an area where Satan could easily ambush you? Are you aware of an area of your life that maybe the Lord through the Holy Spirit is identifying for you right now as we study that is a weakness that could be exploited by the enemy. Do you have one? Do you have a weak area? You know, Nehemiah, he, he said this in Nehemiah 6, 9 to this ambush, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. You know, just like Jesus, three times he refuted the enemy with the word of God, three times Nehemiah refuted him with prayer. And maybe some of us need to pray this prayer. Lord, I put this in your hands, now strengthen my hands. And we need to be reminded that our struggle in Ephesians 6, 12 is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. When you choose to be a collider, it will be met with great resistance. Because all of a sudden, the devil has one more enemy than he did before. And he will resist you. But just like God saw Nehemiah through, I promise you, 
he will see you through as well.